but we are thankful. Have you ever had a job that required you to dress in a certain way? My first job, and I was actually a junior high kid, I got a job at Southern Hills Country Club caddying. It required me to wake up at 4.30 in the morning, get on my bike and ride about three miles with a friend of mine in order to get there and put on a white overcoat or white oversuit, covered everything so that we could carry rich people's golf clubs all day. It paid about $20 to care for four hours. And for a junior high kid, that was as good as it gets. But we had a dress code and we struggled with that a little bit, but most jobs do. Later on, I worked at Subway, which allowed me to wear the famous yellow shirt that said Subway on it, told me I was a sandwich artist, made me feel better about making other people's sandwiches for them for a while. Later, I had an office job that required me to wear pants and a polo shirt all the time. Stood on my feet all day long. It was a beating, but that job paid better than any job I had for a long time. After that, I worked as a youth pastor, which, by the way, has the best clothing requirement as I wore t-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops all the time, though I was required to have a closet that had like khakis and a polo and a suit and all that, because when you work in youth ministry, you literally have no idea what your day will hold, so you might start off in something simple and have to play basketball and then go to a funeral in the same day. That's the nature of youth work. Knowing what you can and can't wear in a job is important, and every job has a dress code as it somewhat declares the mission of the organization. This morning, we are, as we turn into Colossians 3, Paul is going to exhort us in what we should and should not wear as believers in these 17 verses. We won't cover it all this morning, but he's going to exhort us in what we should and shouldn't wear. Now, if you weren't here last week, I need to tell you, it has nothing to do with the clothes that you wear. The Bible's pretty clear about that. We walked through that last week, that churches can create expectations of rules that tell you that you've got to do this in order to fit in, you've got to do this in order to play a part, that a good Christian can do this, a good Christian should do that. And Paul pushes back on all of that in Colossians with the gospel that says we do not put other rules, we do not put other expectations on people to follow Christ. And so here what Paul is going to do, having told us it's not about our clothes, it's not about what we taste, it's not about what we drink, he's not going to exhort us into what we should wear. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so let's dig into Colossians 3. Colossians 3.1 says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Starting in this third chapter, Paul's going to begin to put before us the implications of the gospel. In chapter 1, he puts the gospel before us. In chapter 2, he clarifies all kinds of misgivings about the gospel. And in chapter 3, he's going to begin to give us the applications of it. How then do we live? What bearing does the gospel have on my life or am I just saved to be put in a museum? What does it look like to live out the gospel? And this is so important for us to see, because as we often say, the indicative always precedes the imperative. That's the nerdy seminary way of putting it. What it means is that the Bible always tells you who you are before it tells you what to do. And this is at the heart of our faith. That we come to Christ as people who fall short. 
that in Christ we receive the grace and mercy that He provided for us at the cross. And our belief in Him that we are transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That it's in Him that we find a great salvation that was purchased by His blood and by His work at the cross and not by our action or our works. Friends, we need to keep before us that the gospel requires nothing of you before salvation. And only in salvation, according to Romans 10.9, is it that you are called to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. That even in salvation, all we do is acknowledge who He is. That He is the Christ. That He is the Messiah, that it's about His completed work at the cross, not about my works, lest anyone should boast in Ephesians. We acknowledge who He is, that He's the Christ, that He's the Anointed One, that He is the only one that can forgive my sins. It's all packaged in this verbiage that we don't have to have our act together, that we don't have to follow the rules. We just confess who He is and we believe. Friends, according to the Scriptures, that is salvation. And I hope that that's something you've considered. Because it could be amongst us that there are people who get drugged here on a regular basis and have never confessed and have never believed. It's possible that you're here with a friend this morning and it's not your normal course of action, but you, you came and you've never heard the Gospel, you've never responded to it, and that's all put before you in the Scripture. Confess who He is and believe. Because before we continue on, before we press into Paul's exhortations, the implications of the Gospel, if we don't get that, we're going to be tempted to think that you earn God's favor by your actions. Or that by doing these things, you earn God's merit. Or by doing these things or not doing these things, you may or may not be a believer. If we don't put the gospel before it, you'd be, you'd be pressed into believing we have merely a moral code and a living standard. Everything that Paul refutes in chapter 2. But what Paul does here is give us the implications of the gospel and tells us that if you have been raised with Christ, this is a first-class conditional statement in Greek, which presupposes the positive. This happens multiple times. If you want to read it in a more English way, you could say, since you have been raised. Paul's taking it for granted that you have been raised with Christ. And having used this terminology before, it's the same as in Colossians 2.20, when he writes, if you have died with Christ. He's presupposing here that you've accepted the gospel, that you died with Christ, that your sins were forgiven, and here you were resurrected into a new life with Christ. Friends, this is the very picture of baptism. That in baptism, we make public our proclamation that we have have acknowledged our sins we are put under the water that we are die that we died with Christ and that we are raised again in new life that's the 
testimony of baptism. The new life that we're called into. So that's what Paul is exhorting us here into. That in Christ, we who have believed in Him have been given in a new life. And so he says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. So since you have been raised, live the new life. The resurrected life. The NIV translates this as set your heart on things above. But the verb means to strive after or to pursue. That you would strive after the things that are above. That you would pursue the things that are above. I have no idea if you've ever stood on top of a mountain. And I'm not talking about the thing over by Home Depot. And I'm not talking about Detroit Mountain. I'm talking about a real, legitimate, actual mountain. I come from Colorado. I'm a little strict in my definitions. If you've ever stood on top of a mountain, the view is absolutely amazing. In fact, it's breathtaking. But you can be tempted, having climbed a mountain, I've stood on top of four 14ers in the state of Colorado, you can be tempted upon getting there to be so thoroughly sucking air as to not appreciate why you're there. That's been my experience a couple of times. You are so bent over striving for oxygen that you have no appreciation of why you're there. And friends, that is not the gospel, okay? We could buy into this fact that I've got to earn my way up. And that by earning my way up, I'm there because I work there. No, the gospel provides you the gondola, right? You didn't have to walk up the mountain. God picked you up and he placed you on top. I used to read an anecdote in Texas. I think I've shared it with you before, that if you see a turtle on top of a fence post, the one thing you know that it's true is that he didn't put himself there. And that's true of us. We don't get raised up on our own. We get raised up through Jesus Christ who serves as the faculty to so us, pick us up and set us on a fence post or pick us up or set us on top of a mountain. Look around is what G- Paul is putting before you. This is what I have. You have been raised up. Look at verse 2. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Pursue it. And set your mind on it are his exhortations. And he's contrasting the things that are above and the things that are below. So we're reminded that in Christ, that there's a difference between the way that a Christian should look, the way that a Christian should act, those that follow Jesus, and those that follow the ways of the world. There's a difference. That the gospel of Jesus Christ, which saves us, also calls us to live and to think differently than the world. Why? Because we've been raised above with Jesus Christ. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And with Christ, and when Christ who is your life appears then you will also appear with him in glory. And so Paul declares that we have died with him 
that we've been raised with Him, and someday we will be glorified with Him, He continues to press into this, your unity with Christ. It's your unity in Christ that forgave you from sins. It's your unity in Christ that's resurrected you to lead a new life. And it's your unity in Christ that will see to it that you're glorified with Him in the end. And if you want more clarity on what some of this looks like, if you want to know what it looks like to set your mind on things above, if you want to know what it looks like to pursue this, you're in luck. Because Paul answers your question. Because that's what he takes on in verses 4 through 17. What does it look like then to pursue the things that are above? What does it look like then to set your mind on these things? And in verses 5 through 11, he tells us that seeking the things that are above looks like taking off the old self, like an old, worn-out, dirty shirt, like you just got done mowing the lawn and you're covered with the smell of gasoline, a little bit of oil, grass clippings. If you've ever mowed my lawn, a lot of dirt and rocks. And in verse 12 through 17, he says that seeking the things are above looks, looks a lot like putting on the new self. And friends, this is not cleaning yourself up so that you'll be approved by God. This is claiming the death and the resurrection of Jesus in your life that you have died. And because you have died with Christ, that means that some of your ways of thinking, some of your ways of living, and some of your ways of talking also have to die. That they have to be crucified with Christ but you've also been raised up with him which means that you are being renewed day by day which means that you are being restored and as Paul would say in 2nd Corinthians that you are a new creation that you are brand new because it's who you are we don't have time to dig into both of them this morning so we'll spend the rest of our time together considering the old self in these next six verses, as Paul will exhort the Colossians and alongside them with us with some rather strong words to separate themselves from their former lives. And then in two weeks, we'll take on the rest of the passage. He uses three exhortations in these next six verses. Strong words. He says, put to death. Put away And then do not lie. Things that separate the old life from the new life. Things that like a dirty shirt you've got to get rid of. Things that have to die as you come to Christ. He says in verse 5, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Earthly is different than your flesh. It's not just the... He's not calling you to put aside what makes you human. He's calling you to put aside what makes you earthly, the sinful passions within you. And he gives you some examples here. He says sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death, Paul says. Reckon it as dead, another version says. For you died with Christ, your sin died too, cut it off. 
for, I don't know how many of you have had an appendix taken out. What I have noticed is none of you are still carrying it around. In fact, I've never seen anyone walk around with their appendix in a jar saying, hey, this is me. But my dead self, we're hanging out still. You killed it. You put it away. It is no longer a part of you. And what Paul says here is in this category of sin, and by the way, some Greek knowledge would help you here, all five of these that are listed are sexual in nature according to their definitions. So what he says here is whether you're involved in participating in sex outside of the context of marriage, sexual immorality, whether you're involved in pornography, whether you're cultivating lust, whether you're pursuing sex within a marriage in a manner that is completely self-seeking, that's how all of these words define themselves, If you're doing any of those things, Paul says, that is your old self, kill it. Make it die. Reckon it as dead, move on, put it in a jar and toss it out. He says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. He makes it clear that these are serious of nature. They are not to be trifled with. In these, you too once walked and you were living in them. He acknowledges that it can be in our past, but that it can't be in our present. Friends, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in Him for salvation, you have to kill sexual sin. You cannot afford to keep it around. You can't afford the price of it. In the Old Testament book of Joshua, God calls Joshua to lead his people to purify themselves by physically removing everything that would lead them to impurities. Does that reckon into this conversation? Absolutely it does. He calls them that they would remove these impurities so that they would not be led into sin. And in the Old Testament, that involves purifying the land by removing those who would worship false gods, who would point you to idolatry, These are some of the passages, by the way, that decry genocide. If you ever want to have a conversation about it, don't be afraid of them. God's got a purpose in his word. I'd love to chat about it. Because I get that there's problems that people bring to these texts. But I want you to see what God is doing in this text is in the quest for purity, calling them to remove everything that would lead them astray. Someday I'll preach the book of Joshua. Because the message is much needed for us. But this is what God says in Joshua 3.10. says, in Joshua, you have to appreciate Joshua serving as the mouth of God at this moment. He's speaking what God has given him to say. Joshua tells the people, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. And that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Joshua declares for them that you will know that God is alive and that God is moving and that God without fail will drive out all of these people. Do not be afraid. 
Joshua 11, the Lord tells Joshua with the Jebusites immediately before him, do not fear them, for I will give them over to you and they will be slain. Again, telling him that God will take care of it. But four chapters later, in verse 15, it says this. Joshua 15, 63. But the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. The people of Judah. It's very specific language. The people of Judah could not drive them out. Oh, it doesn't say God couldn't. It says the people couldn't. Now, you don't know if that's that they didn't try. You don't know if it's that they didn't trust. What you do know is if you study the book of Joshua over and over and over again, is God causes people to enter into battle, completely trusting him for the results. And when they step into battle, trusting him for the results, he takes care of it. But when they lean on their own power, it's always futile. That's why, for example, God calls Joshua to circumcise his entire army before they go into battle. Good battle plan? No. It's an awful battle plan. But it required them to live fully dependent on God. Because God gave them victory when they depended on him. And when they failed, it was because they stopped looking at him and tried to do it their own way by their own power, by their own abilities. Friends, you cannot beat sexual sin in your own power. You can't. That's why he's given you a church to walk with, to be in fellowship with, so that we can point each other thoroughly over and over and over to the only God who can give you victory, to the God who has raised you with Christ so that you can reckon it as dead so that you can put it away put it in your past because I want you to see this the book of Judges completes the story of the Jebusites for us and Judges 121 continues but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites again God calls somebody to remove them The people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And if you were to walk through your scriptures, you'd find the Jebusites in 2 Samuel. You'd find the Jebusites in 1 Kings. You'd find the Jebusites in 1 and 2 Chronicles. You'd find them in Ezra. You'd find them in Nehemiah. You'd find them in Zechariah always thwarting God's people, always leading them to idolatry, always pushing them away from intimacy with God. And in fact, you still find them in Israel now. Over the weekend, I read a long article where Yasser Arafat was claiming that the Jebusites still live in the land. What a testimony to us, even from the Old Testament, that if you don't kill sin, it will haunt you forever. When sexual sin is too dangerous to keep around, Paul says you've been raised with Christ. Seek the higher things. Kill the sin. Reckon it as dead. It is dead. Put it away. 
Then he gives them a second exhortation. This time aimed at their tongue. Verse 8. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Paul says, seek the things that are above by putting away sin from your mouth. Anger. That you would never settle yourself into hostility to take it out on someone else. Wrath. That you'd be given over to verbal outbursts of evil. Malice. That you'd willfully set out to hurt someone. Slander. That you'd go about talking poorly about people. Obscene talk. Literally in this case, that you would use abusive talk so as to hurt or wound somebody in an abusive way. Paul exhorts you who have been buried with Christ and raised with Christ to put off the dead parts of you and to put away the sins of your tongue. Take it off. It's not who you are. You don't live there. James, the half-brother of Jesus, put it this way in his epistle. James 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. Watch the illustration. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set amongst our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. James, half-brother of Jesus, puts before you that a large ship, which could be in order in every other possible, feasible way, is driven by a rudder. Why? Friends, you could have the greatest character. You could be the most moral person on the planet. You could make Gandhi look like an adult film star. But if your tongue is not under control, you're setting the world on fire. You're setting large fires. You're setting forest fires. He says it comes from hell. And it ruins the entire course of your life. Paul says we have to put it away. It's not who you are. That in the process of dying with Christ, that this is part of what gets rid of you. It's part of what you leave in a baptismal pool. The filth of sin. We put it away. Finally, he says in verse 9, and do not lie to one another. And i got to tell you, in the Greek language, this is in a very strong tense. Never lie. Friends, do you recognize that for millennia our faith has been called the truth? Jesus said, I am the truth. Have we not picked up the fact 
that he's trying to delineate ourselves and calling it the truth that lying is the issue. That if we choose to engage in lying, even little white lies, all it does is degrade from us to take us in directions we don't want to go. Paul warns us, put it away. Seeing that you have put off the old self in his practices, verse 9, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Paul gives you the illustration here that just as you've worked in your yard and you're dirty and gross, you would take off your old clothes and put on something else. That having died with Christ, you put it off some things. And that you put off sexual sin and you put off the sins of your tongue and you put off lying. It's not telling you you've got to do these things so you be approved of God. It's telling you because you've been raised, because you died with Christ and you've been raised, put them away. Put them away. And put on the new self. I'd be happy today that I'm married to my wife. Several times when teaching this passage, I have a nice red union suit that I like to put on to identify what it looks like to be covered in Christ, to put on something. My wife thinks it's tacky, so I didn't do it. Yeah. I will tell you that there are pictures of that on Facebook because every time I've ever done it, people pull out their cameras and take pictures. Apparently, it's awkward. So, there you go. Paul exhorts us to put off the old self with all of its practices and put on the new self. Why? Because we've died with Christ. And we've been raised with Christ. It's who we are in Christ. So we take off the old clothes of sexual sin and the sins of the tongue and of lying and we put on the new self to live out and to live in the gospel. Friends, what Paul is putting before you is not is simply that the gospel doesn't just save you. The gospel redeems you. And in its redemption of you, it takes things away from you and causes things to die from you. And your willingness to hold on to those things is a rejection of the gospel. That doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means you're not taking God at His word. You're not trusting in Him. You're not walking out the gospel. That you've been died to Christ. They died and you're raised to something else. And finally, in verse 11, he says, Here there is not Greek nor Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. And what he does in verse 11 becomes crucial to us. Because it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you haven't done. It doesn't matter the past. All the things you've ever done. It doesn't matter whether you're deep, neck deep in sin right now or you've been walking free in Christ for years and years and years and years. Because Christ is all. That we all sit on the same plane at the foot of the cross. 
that this truth is just as true for every single one of us. So if you've been following Jesus for like 87 years, and the last 10 have been nearly perfect, it's true for you. And if you came to Christ like seven minutes ago, and you're still neck deep in sin, it's true for you. And if you've been walking with Jesus Christ, and you're neck deep in sexual sin, and you're engaged in pornography, it's still true for you. You've died with Christ. Put it away. It has no power over you. You have been freed. Reckon it as death. Paul exhorts us that in light of the Gospel, which he has clarified, I mean, we don't add things to it, that it's Christ's saving work and Christ's work alone that is our salvation, that the gospel then transforms our life by calling us to take off the old self, by shedding that which is dead, and by putting on Christ. Next week I have the opportunity to be in Memphis to perform a wedding. I'm excited for you. Scott Wavern will be bringing the word next week. I'm excited about what God's doing in his life right now and the word he's bringing to you. And in two weeks we'll be back to finish Colossians 3. Let me pray for us. Righteous Father, there is no one here, not one, who's doing everything right. Often the tension is church, Father. I've been there that we come in and we think other people are doing everything right and I'm falling short. But Father, your scriptures declare that we're all in the same spot. That we're all at the same, we're on the same level at the foot of the cross. Regardless of our standing. Father, we all need the gospel. We need it to save us. We need it to redeem us. We need it to be at work in us. We need it to glorify us. And Father, my prayer for us as a church that we'd believe more and more and more and more into the gospel of Jesus. That just as he saves us and calls us to himself, he also calls us to die to ourselves. And Father, I pray that by the power of the death of your Son, that we who've been united to him father that you'd allow our sins to die too will we struggle oh father we'll always struggle but father call us out of it redeem us let us put it away that we could walk in the freedom granted by your death and father i pray that you would give us the grace as we ne- take the next steps forward to put on christ because we've been raised with him too. Father, thank you for your word, for how it declares the gospel to us and how it clarifies the gospel for us. Father, that it wouldn't just save us, but it also redeem us and all of our faults and all of our challenges and all of our struggles and trials. Christ, may you be uplifted and glorified. We've been raised with you. Give us the power to live like it. In your name we pray. Amen.